The reason he said nice tie is because this is the one he was wearing last week. <laughs> I don't know if we got it at the same place, but uh, we may have. So anyway, well, it's good to be here. Uh, if you've been following me at all on Facebook, you know that Lynn and I have been in Canada since Monday. And uh, I went there for a theology conference. I was invited to this theology conference. It's made up of these real elite New Testament scholars, and uh, someone invited me to go. I was totally out of my class, I can tell you that much. But anyway, uh, it was a good time, and we were in Montreal, Canada. And I'd never been to Montreal. I didn't know what anybody was saying. A lot of people speak French. In fact, some of the lectures that I attended were given in French. And some of the lectures were given in German. And then some were given in English. And I understood some of the English lectures. <laughs> but uh, if you haven't been to Montreal, it's a very old city. And we were somewhat in the downtown area. And uh, I mean, the sidewalks are crumbling and the people are not kind like they are in Dallas. You know, you're walking down the sidewalk, they just come toward you and they don't move. I mean, you have to get off because they just built the run you It's very interesting. I didn't understand, I don't know why they did that, but uh, that's just how they were. And a lot of people were riding bicycles and as a result, a lot of people were thinner than we are here. <laughs> Two reasons. One is they ride bicycles, and two, they don't eat Mexican food up there. So and the, the traffic is, it was really terrible in downtown. And they always take advantage of just, you know, if the light is, turns red, two cars try to get through. You know. And it, it was just a crazy place. But the worst thing is we had to pass through a third world country to get there from Dallas. Uh, now, most people don't go to a third world country to go from Dallas to Canada. But we went through LaGuardia Airport. <laughs> okay. Let me tell you, <laughs> I learned the lesson of my life. Could never go to LaGuardia Airport if you could help it. But anyway, it's good to be back in Texas. And uh, we're going to study Psalm 109. So take your Bible and turn over to uh, the book of Psalms. And we're going to look at Psalm 109. I mentioned on my uh, Facebook post that uh, in 1969 I had signed a contract to play baseball for the Quebec Indians. Boy, I'm glad I never went there. that contract. I mean, it wasn't much of a contract. They're going to pay me $500 a month. Can you imagine that? College graduate making $500 a month to play ball. I never got there, but uh, finally did 45 years later. and. Uh, I would have been totally lost as a kid up there if everybody's speaking French. I wouldn't have known what to do. But anyway. Uh, notice this superscription on the psalm. It says, to the chief musician, which indicates that this is a psalm. And then it says it's a psalm of David. And when you read the psalm, it doesn't sound like a psalm of David. Now, the superscription's not inspired. Somebody adds that to the psalm. They're telling you what they think, and uh, 
it's very, these superscriptions are very old, but sometimes they're not right. But if you would read Spurgeon's commentary on Psalm 109, he believes that uh, this psalm was written during the time when Absalom, David's son, uh, tried to uh, overthrow his dad's government, led a coup against the government. Uh, I'm not convinced that that is the historical setting uh, in this case. Uh, I think it is, it's more likely that the historical setting takes place during the time of Jeremiah, right before the Babylonian captivity. And it could be the part of the psalm was written by David, and later Jeremiah takes that psalm and adds words to it, and then eventually makes it in the scripture. Just remember that the scriptures are, are what we call the canon of scriptures. The 39 books in the Old Testament weren't written and just put, now they, now we have the scripture, right? Uh, they didn't compile all 39 books until years and years and hundreds of years after they were written, in any case. And so it could be that uh, part of this is from David, and that's how it's listed, but Jeremiah adds some, and then it becomes part of the canon. But anyway, uh, we're going to look at both of those possibilities, whether this is David writing it, in the context of the coup, or whether it's Jeremiah writing it in context of the imminent uh, captivity by Babylon. So here's how I'm going to outline this thing. Uh, verses 1 through 5, for this is for those of you who like to take notes, uh, the psalmist complains about his lot in life. So these first five verses make up what we call a lament, where he's lamenting his lot in life. In modern day terms, we just say it's a complaint. This is the psalmist's complaint, and he cries out for help. Then verses 6 through 20, we have what's called an imprecatory prayer. An imprecatory prayer, which is a prayer to God against his enemies, saying, God, burn them to a crisp. You know, this is what we call, a, a he calls down a curse upon his enemies. What kind of prayer is that? We don't like those kinds of prayers. We think of uh, the writers of Scripture as nice people who would, you know, always want God to forgive people. But this is, we have these imprecatory parts of prayers where curses are called down. Praise down judgment. And then verses 20 through 31, uh, the psalmist requests God to bless him okay, and curse the others. Okay? So if we were, if I were preaching this, in, like from a pulpit somewhere in the church. Uh, I might title this uh, message, What to Do When Heaven is Silent, because that's what you're going to see happening here. So first of all, let's look at these first five verses, the psalmist's complaint, okay? Look at verses 1 and 2. Now he's addressing God. He says, Do not keep silent, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. So, what we see here is that, I'm not sure why I'm getting this uh, feedback from this wire, maybe, but we're going to have a little break here for a second. Our associate director of media. <laughs> Probably I don't know what's happening. Okay, we're going to try it again. Which one? 
used to get that feedback when you had them on your tie. <laughs> and it was, a lot of times you get that. Just plug it in, I'll just turn it back. Okay. Am I on again? Yeah. Okay. So uh, here's his complaint. His complaint is that his enemies have not kept silent. Right? See that in verse 2. For the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened up against me. And he describes their words as, look, deceitful, mouth of the deceitful, and in the end of verse 2, their words are lying words. They have lying tongues. So his enemies haven't kept silent. Uh, the psalmist hasn't kept silent. Because notice he says in verse 1, O God of my what? He's, kept, he's been speaking. silent because he's been praising the Lord. The only one who's silent is who? God. The Lord's the only one who's silent. So what he's doing, he's complaining. God, you've been silent. I've been praising you. You've been silent. My enemies have not been silent. And so he's giving this complaint. And here's his reason for his complaint. Look at verse 3. They, that would be his enemies, have surrounded me with words of hatred. They have fought against me without a cause. So notice he says, they have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have surrounded me with words of hatred. They fought me without a cause. Now, this is where the people who think that the context is Absalom come in. They said there's one place in the scripture where someone is speaking against David. In fact, they're cursing David. And I want to show this to you. It's found over in 2 Samuel 16. It's an interesting passage if you've never read that. So take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 16. And then I'm going to show you why I don't think it's David. Okay? Why this is wrong. This is Spurgeon's idea right here. People are speaking against David. Here's an example of someone speaking against David. Look down at 2 Samuel 16 and verse 5. Now when King David came to Ba-Rurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, coming from there. He came out, look at this, cursing continuously as he came. This is great. And he threw stones at David, and all the servants of David, and all the people, and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. Also, Shimei said, thus when he cursed, come out, come out, you bloodthirsty men, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. 
And it goes on, and it just goes on and says that he continued to curse David. You see verse 13. And David and his men went along the road, and Shimei went along the hillside opposite, and cursed as he went, and threw stones at him, and he kicked up dust. So here's this example of somebody speaking against David, and when is it happening? It's happening when Absalom is trying to overthrow David's kingdom. And Absalom has gotten a lot of people on his side, and the people are angry at King David, and wherever King David goes, they speak against King David. And here's one example of that. Does that make sense? Okay, now go back to Psalm 109. Now look at verse 4. So now we see the psalmist's response. Verse 5. Thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. So if this is David, David says, I haven't done anything wrong. I've loved the people. I've done good. And guess what? They've turned against me. So this is why you continue to, why some people think this is the Absalom scenario. They just speak these malicious words and cut into his heart. Look at verse 5. Thus they, did I read verse 4? I skipped verse 4. Let me read verse 4. In return for my love, they are my accusers. But I give myself to prayer. And that's what David did in that situation, right? He prayed for Absalom, his son, and uh, you know, wanted him to repent and everything. And thus they rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Okay. Now, I want you to notice that in verse 2, you see the word mouth. For the mouth of the wicked. These are people who are speaking against it. This is what the whole issue is about. Someone speaking against the psalmist. Mouth, in verse 2, spoken against me. Okay. Verse 3, they wounded me with words. You see that? And then in verse 3, they fought against me without a cause. It seems like there's an enemy coming up against the psalmist. And so many people think that this is the situation. I don't know why this is continuing to happen. The situation is Absalom. Can you hear me now? Can we go off? Okay. Now move this to the front so my coat doesn't hit it. Okay. I don't know what's going on. I'm not going to take my jacket off. <laughs> I should take my jacket off. I don't want to show you what Dallasites look like compared to the Montreal. <laughs> okay, so that's the situation. Okay? Now we have this imprecatory prayer. Okay, This is a bringing down judgment. Now look at verse 6. He says to God, set a wicked man over him. Meaning over, if it's Absalom, it means over Absalom, doesn't it? Okay, now watch, this is why I don't think it's David. Set a wicked man over him. And let an accuser stand at his right hand. So bring somebody into his sphere of influence who's very powerful. Now look at verse 7. When he is judged, let him be found guilty. Okay? Now watch this. If this is Absalom, he says, When he is judged, let him be found guilty. Let his prayer become sin. And the word actually, prayer there, means his appeal. It seems that this guy is going to be judged in a courtroom, and then he's going to, and he's going to be found guilty. And then, when he makes the appeal... 
he doesn't get the appeal. It's like his appeal is just a, a sin. That's what he's saying. Accept it like a sin. Don't, don't, don't allow the appeal to go forth. Let his days be few. Let another person take his what? His office. Does Absalom ever get in the office? No, he never does. Does he ever have a trial before a judge? No, he never has a trial before a judge. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children continually to be vagabonds and beg. See? And watch this. Let them seek their bread and also, also from desolate places. Let the creditor seize all that he has. This has never happened to Absalom. Look. And let the strangers plunder his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy to him. Nor let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Okay. Now watch this. Now he's going to bring curses down on this guy's entire family. Let his posterity be cut off. And in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. He's calling curses down on the entire family line. Now, the problem is with David, Absalom's family line is his family line. So David would be cursing his own family. That wouldn't make sense, would it? No. See, this is why I think Spurgeon and some of the commentators are totally offline, see. I just don't think that this is what... I can't find this in Scripture. Look at this. Look at verse 14. Let the iniquity of his fathers, that would be the forefathers, let their sin the sin of his forefathers, be remembered before the Lord. Well, that would be David's forefathers too, wouldn't it? David wouldn't be calling, you know, curses down on the forefathers. That doesn't make sense. And let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Don't forgive the mother. That would be David's wife. That doesn't even make sense, does it? Look, let them be, their sin continually be before the Lord that he may be cut off from the memory of them from the earth. So he's cursing the entire family line. This is an imprecatory prayer. If this were David, he would be cursing his own family line, his own forefathers. It just doesn't make sense to me. So I wanted to show you that. I wanted to read the verses in that context so you could see this. Okay? Now look at the reason for the curses here. Verse 16. Because he did not remember to show mercy, that's his enemy, but persecuted the poor and needy men. Did Absalom ever do that? No, he didn't do that. In fact, Absalom, whenever there was a needy person, Absalom would stand at the gate. He said, you know, David's too busy to, to listen to your case. I know you have some needs, but you know, when I become king, I'll take care of you. See, he wasn't, this does not describe him. But whoever this person is, what he has done is he has persecuted the poor in verse 16. Because he did not remember to show mercy, but persecuted the poor and the needy, that he might even slay the broken in heart. So I don't think that this is describing Absalom. But I believe that the scenario fits into Jeremiah. Okay? So I want to show you why I think it fits into Jeremiah. I see nowhere in David's life where he curses Absalom and the mother and family line. But I do see these kinds of things in the life of Jeremiah. Now turn over to Jeremiah 18. I'll just show this to you very quickly. 
Jeremiah 18. Now let me just set this up for you. Jeremiah 18. You have Saul, David, and Solomon who are kings over Israel and then the king divides into between the north and south. Remember that? The north falls to Assyria. Only the south is intact. And one of their kings in the south is called Manasseh. And Manasseh is the wickedest man, the scripture says, who ever lived. Now his grandfather was Josiah, a great king who brought revival to Israel. He cleaned out all the idolatry. But when Manasseh took over, he brought back the idolatry. He turned Israel to worshiping the Baal gods. And as a result, God cast judgment on the southern kingdom. He says, because of the way Manasseh has acted, I'm going to bring the mighty empire of Babylon down on it, and it's going to be defeated, and its people are going to go into captivity. So, that's the background. Now, Jeremiah is now prophesying against the southern kingdom for their sin. Okay? And he is confronted by a priest. And Manasseh has now died, but God has pronounced the judgment on him. And there's another king in power in the south called Jeconiah. So there's two people. There's a priest and there's a bad king named Jeconiah. And they are persecuting Jeremiah and they are you know, lying about him. They're saying he doesn't represent God because Jeremiah would say bad things about the kingdom. He said, we're going to be destroyed. We've broken God's covenant. He's going to destroy the southern kingdom. And the king didn't like it. He had his own prophets. And his own prophets would come along and say, what do you think of the prophets? Oh, God's going to bless the kingdom. This is what politicians do. They get yes men around them. They get yes men around them. And so David, uh, or Jeremiah has to contend against his bad king and against his prophet who are doing all these things that we saw in the psalm. Okay? So look at Jeremiah 18 and look at verse... Uh, let's start at verse 11 here. Now therefore speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying... Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now, every one of you, from his evil worries and make your ways and your doings good. And they said, That's hopeless. We will walk according to our own plans. See, they weren't going to listen to God through his prophets. And we will, everyone, obey the dictates of of his evil heart. Look at it in verse 18. Then they said, and this is against Jeremiah, Come, and let us devise plans against Jeremiah. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor the counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come, and let us attack him with the tongue. And let us not give heed to any of his words. Then we have God speak. Give heed to me, O Lord, and listen. Uh, or Jeremiah speaking. Give heed to me, O Lord, and listen to the voice of those who contend with me. Shall evil be repaid for good? Did you see that in the psalm? 
David said, hey, I've been doing good. The psalmist said, I've been doing good, and they've been doing what? Evil. You see that same wording there? Shall evil be repaid for good? For they have dug a pit for my life. Remember that I stood before you to speak good for them, to turn away your wrath from them. Therefore, deliver up their children to famine. They didn't listen. Here's what I want you to do. Deliver their children to famine. Okay, now, you see that in the psalm when he says, hey, take care of your kids, right? Look, deliver their children to famine. Pour out their blood by the force of the sword. Let their wives become widows and bereaved of their children. Let their men be put to death. Their young men be slain by the sword of battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses when you bring a troop suddenly upon them. For they've done, dug a pit to take me and hidden snares for my feet. Yet, Lord, you know all the counsel which is against me to slay me. Provide no atonement for their iniquity. In other words, never forgive their sins. Nor blot out the sins from your sight. But let them be overthrown before you. Deal thus with them in the time of your anger. Right in the preparatory prayer. You see that? He's calling judgment down upon them. Now let me show you one other passage. Look at verse 20. Chapter 20, brother. Chapter 20. Look at this. Now here's the prophet, that's, that, uh, or the priest, that uh, Jeremiah is having to deal with. This is Jeremiah 20, verse 1. Now, Pasher, the son of Emir, the priest, was also the chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Then Pasher struck Jeremiah the prophet and put him in stocks that they were that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was the house of the Lord. So here we have this one individual who is definitely against Jeremiah and actually is striking him and trying to, to hurt him. Now let me show you one other passage. Go to chapter 22. And here's the king that is reigning at this time. Another bad king, a relative of Manasseh, following in his grandfather's footsteps. Look at this. Look at verse 24. 22-24. As I live, says the Lord, though Kaniah, that's Jeconiah, that's the, the, the king, the son of Jerah, uh, Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. And I give you into the hand of those who seek your life, he said. I'm going to pluck you off. I'm going to give you into the hands of those who seek your life. And into the hand of those uh, whose face you fear. The hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. And I will cast you out. And look at this. I'll cast you out in who? Your mother before you. Do you see that? Into another country where you were not born. And there you shall die. But in the land in which they desire to return, there they shall not return. Is this man, Kaniah or Jeconiah, a despised, broken idol, a vessel in which there's no pleasure? Why are they cast? Why are they cast out? He and his descendants. Look at this. He and his descendants. And cast, and cast into a land which they do not know. O oh, earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, 
write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in these days, for none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne and ruling anymore in Judas. And that really sounds like the context of Jeremiah, doesn't it? Now, with that, I want you to go back to Psalm 109 and finish this thing off. So now read verse 16 through 19. And look what it says. Because he did not remember to show mercy, that would be Jeconiah and his priests and his prophets, but persecuted the poor and the needy, that he might even slay the broken of heart. As he loved cursing, so let it come to him. As he did not delight in blessing, so let it be far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing, as with his garment, so let it enter his body as water. Let it be to him like a garment which covers him, and for a belt with which he girds himself continually. In other words, because this person is, has broken the covenant, is a bad king, let him be cursed, 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 and everybody around him be cursed. Okay? So, look at the words let there. Look at the words let in this precatory prayer. Look, verse 6. Let an accursed stand in his right hand. Look at verse 7. Let him be found guilty. Let his prayer become sin. Look at verse 8. Let his days be low. Let another take his office. Look at verse 10. Let his children be continually vagabond. Let them that seek his bread, so on and so forth. Verse 11. Let the creditor seize all he has. Let the strangers plunder. That would be Babylon. Plunder his labor. Let there be none send mercy. Nor let there be any favor unto his fatherless children. Verse 30. Let his posterity, posterity be cut off. And the generations following uh, his name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be. Let not his the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them who continue to sin. Let, let. How many lets you got there? Verse 17. As he loved cursing, so let it come to him. See? As he did not delight in blessing, so let it be far from him. Look at verse 18. As he clothed himself with cursing and garment, so let it enter his body. Verse 19. Let it be to him. See? Like a garment which covers him. So here you see this let, 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 and let. You see that? This is an imprecatory prayer. Uh, calling the person upon this enemy of the right. Now look at verse 20. Let it be to him. Uh, verse 20. Let this be, let this be the Lord's reward to my accusers and those who speak evil against my person. See, that seems like it's Jeremiah to me. So I think that this is what we call a complaint. God, why are you keeping silent when I'm praising you? My enemies are not keeping silent. They're persecuting me. And so in light of that, he calls down all these curses upon this man and his family. Now, in this last section, he turns to God and he asks for some personal blessings. Look at verse 1. But you, see, well, the psalmist's enemies, this is what he did, and here's what I want you to do to him. But you, O oh God the Lord, deal with me for your name's sake. 
God said he would keep a covenant and his word was as good as his bond and he would uphold his name and he says, based on your covenant, I want you to deal with me. I kept your covenant, I want you to deal with me. Because your mercy is good, deliver me. You see that? For I am poor and needy. Here's why he asked for deliverance. Why? Because I am poor and needy and my heart is wounded within me. He is physically distraught and he is emotionally distraught. Okay. Look at verse 23. I am gone like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak. Yeah, then he was put in a pit. They beat this guy down. He is beaten down. Look, my knees are weak. Through fasting, he hasn't been fed. And my flesh is feeble from lack of fatness. I also have become a reproach to them. Because he told the truth and they didn't like it. When they look at me, they shake their heads. I'm contemptible to them. They hate, I think, Jeremiah in this case. And so now we have this final, this cry for desperation. Look what he says, verse 26. Help me, O Lord, my God. And notice all caps there. Help me, the God of the covenant, who's promised to help when we call. Help me, O Lord, my God. O save me according to your mercy or your compassion or your loving kindness, your covenant love. So that is his cry of desperation. To what end? Look at verse 27. That they, that would be his enemies, may know that this is your hand that you, Lord, have done it. Uh, very interesting is that they end up um, putting Jeremiah in jail. But you know what happens? Babylon comes down and destroys the southern kingdom of Judah. And the king of Babylon frees Jeremiah. The enemy of the state frees Jeremiah. And uh, it's God's doing. It's obvious it's, this is all God's doing. Now he does a comparison and contrast. Look at verse 28. Let them curse, but you what? You bless. You know, they'll curse me, they'll curse you, but I want you to bless. When they arise, let them be ashamed. But let your servant Rejoice. See that comparison and contrast? They curse, you bless. When they arise against me, take care of them, put them to shame, but allow your servant, that would be Jeremiah, to rejoice. Look at verse 29. Let my accusers be clothed with shame, and let them cover themselves with their own disgrace, as with a mantle. That sounds a lot like the Jeremiah passage. I will greatly, that's what should happen to them. They should be disgraced. I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. I will praise him among the multitude. So he says, I will continue to praise you, God, and that's why I expect you or want you to come and aid me in this way. And then the final verse. For he shall stand at the right hand of the poor 
that's God, that is Jeremiah, he will also stand with the poor. Look, Jeremiah said, I'm poor, and guess what? God will stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. Now that's Psalm 109. It's a different psalm. All makes sense if you read it in light of the Jeremiah situation as opposed to the Absalom situation. Notice something. God is always on the side of the underdog. Do you see that? God is always on the side of the poor. Do you see that? How many times have we seen that? What we always see. Over and over and over again. Not just poor people, but those who obey the covenant of God enter the poor. Not just every poor person, but covenant people who are poor and covenant people who are bad, he stands against. So, every all of Israel was under the covenant of God, and God said, if you do this, I will bless you. If you do this, I will curse you. And they all said, we will obey God. But guess what? A lot didn't obey. And they rose to the top. And they oppressed the poor who did obey God. And that's what happened in Israel. And so Jeremiah cries out, Oh God, help him. God, here's what I want you to do. Destroy those who are in power who do not obey the government. Help those who poor are poor and oppressed and been dominated by the powers that be who do obey the government. And he says, for sure, God will actually do that. Why will God do it? Because God is faithful to his covenant. His word is his bond. He said, I'll bless those who bless. I will curse those who curse. And God is faithful to his covenant and he vindicates those who are obedient to him. Now, I know one thing. We don't like these kinds of prayers. We don't know what to do with these imprecatory prayers in America. We said, no one should pray like that. You would kill somebody. Wipe out their family line. Destroy their mother. Forget, don't forget any of their sins. Hold a response. We don't like that. We don't think that things like that should be said. You know why? Because we live in America. We live uh, in a democracy. We don't think things like this should be said. This almost sounds like hate speech. You know, against leaders. But in a theocracy that's based on God's covenant, this makes clear sense. And so what we have here is we have God, he asks God to be faithful to his covenant, deliver those who are obedient to the covenant, and curse those who are against the covenant. And so God indeed comes through. He sends the Babylonian army down and literally destroys Jerusalem. Destroys the temple. Burns the city. Scatters the people. And Jeremiah's prophecy is fulfilled, and Jeremiah is vindicated. Notice the next psalm, Psalm 110. What's unique about this psalm? The most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Quoted more than any other psalm in the New Testament. And it's quoted in all kinds of New Testament books, and that's where we'll pick up next week. Lord, we thank you for your word. Even in the midst of the disruption and the static of this microphone that's caused some 
cause us to get our eyes off the text for a moment. Help us to, to take to heart what this means. You have established for us, the church, a covenant. A new covenant through the blood of Christ. We have said to you, Lord, we believe. Jesus said, if you believe me, you will obey me. Lord, we are very similar to these Old Testament saints. Only we're under a different covenant. But still, the obedience is necessary. It's not enough to say we believe. We are to be obedient children of the one true and living God. Oh Lord, help us to learn this lesson. Help us to learn that there's a great blessing in obedience. It's a great blessing, Lord, when we reach out and we don't dominate people, but we reach out and we love people and we embrace people. And we don't see people based on their economic status or based on their color of their skin or their national origin. We believe that those who are in Christ are one. And there is no distinction. Oh Lord, help us to be obedient servants to you. In Christ's name, amen.